So it came up this morning again in the discussion about what happens that sometimes uh, with the best of what we know about uh, the way that uh, suffering, uh, apart from the pain in the world, the manifest suffering, uh, or what we call suffering through uh, in external ways, that the biggest suffering that uh, we can work on is the suffering in our own minds that are, is constructed by the habits of our own mind. You know, we talk about, in the, in the West, we talk about pain and suffering um, somewhat interchangeably. In English, we certainly say that so-and-so had a lot of pain and suffering. And uh, suffering usually means prolonged pain over time. And the word suffering in Pali, the dukkha word for suffering, really has another meaning. It has several layers of meaning. One of the layers of meaning is uh, the pain of being in a human life, in a human body over time, that uh, it's subject to all kinds of ills, and we get old, and we, if, if we're lucky, we get old, and uh, we get all kinds of infirmities and aches and pains, old or young, and illnesses that we didn't want, all of which we have to accommodate to. We have to keep caring and feeding for this body all the time. Um, can't take too much time off from that. Today's shower will only last until tomorrow. You know, to do it all over again. There's a lot of <laughs> care, and that's not a, you know we don't normally think of it in terms of dukkha, but but it re, this is, it's a it's a body that requires ongoing care. So there's a level of um, um, things that have to be taken care of. There's a level of accommodating to what doesn't work anymore. There's the inevitable pain in a life of uh, dealing with loss because in not only our own, but the loss of anything um, since everything is changing. The loss of people. There's a line that the Buddha said of, um, that I read quite early in my own practice where he said, everything that is dear to us causes pain. And uh, I found that uh, a difficult line to use to teach people. I was at that time uh, teaching in a variety of places, including at Dominican College. And I was teaching young people in a world religions class. And they were 18 years old, and they grew up in Marin County, and they didn't have a lot of <laughs> And mostly they were from sweet Catholic homes that took good care of them. And I, didn't f and I wanted to present Buddhism in a sweet way. And I didn't want to come and say dreary things like everything that's dear to us causes pain. But uh, it's in fact true. I mean, not maybe in this moment causing pain, but once things become dear to us, we have the possibility. We are open to pain. As soon as we love something, we'll feel bad if we're separated from it. Now, the answer to that is not, okay, I won't love anything, you know, because we're set up to love. We want to love. It is one way of addressing that particular truth that everything that is dear to us causes pain. We can renounce attachments to people, try not to have them, but it's not a, a way that we find gratifying. We're really a culture that's based relationally. We take pleasure in our relationships. I count myself lucky by the number of relationships that are dear to me. And, um, people that I care for, who I think care for me. When we were doing that exercise this morning, when, when you did that metta breathing, was that lovely? Did you like that? Did it remind you of how many people you know? You know? Did you at some point run out of people and start to have to think about, well, who next, who next? No, you didn't run out of people. Isn't that wonderful? You think about it. I knew all that people, and I know this one and that one and that one that I don't ordinarily think about in my prayers, but, but you know, if I, have, if I have to change on each breath, I get this one, this one, this one. You realize your inner population is quite big. It makes you feel good. I think we feel good by our connections. I think it's really it's all we've got is connections. And they cause pain. They are the source of pain. They don't cause the pain. They are the source of pain when they are broken for some reason, 
when people are missing from our lives, either because they don't want to be in them anymore or because they die, that they are the source of pain if we're not able to say, well, that's what happened. You know? But we're not so able to say that. You know, We really get attached to people. It's hard to let go of them. The kind of dukkha that the Buddha talked about the most is the pain in the mind that's extra. You know, we will, in the course of our lives, lose our health and our bodies and our dreams and our hopes, inevitably, just with the passage of time. And we will lose a lot of people, also just with the passage of time. And for each of them, we'll need to accommodate in some way. Sometimes I think about the whole of life being an accommodation. Can you do this? Can you do this? Can you do this? I think it's a good practice, accommodating. I think eventually you accommodate. And then, cause because you, we get to realize that there's nothing to do but accommodate. You can't fight against it because it wins. You know? And then once you accommodate, you just have an open heart. It's kind of like accommodating through heartbrokenness. Um, but it's not sad. It's a kind of accommodation that's wise. It says, look, this is the way it is. On this planet, that's how it happens. And the only response is loving now. I mean, that's really the end of the book. That's the last page. Because <laughs> that's a, you know, maybe I could stop now. The only response is loving now. But in addition to the loss that will happen inevitably, there's the extra suffering in the world, in the mind, that comes up around knots that are tied around habits, knots that are habitual tensions of the mind. There's that lovely scene, which I always think about in the movie Kundun, where uh, uh, the young Dalai Lama, well, the, the actor who's playing the young Dalai Lama, is uh, learning his catechism, so to speak, from his um, teachers. And uh, he's reciting the Four Noble Truths. And they say to him, what's the first noble truth? And he said, life is suffering. And they said, what's the second noble truth? And he said, um, the source of suffering is craving. And um, they say to him, no good, too much pride. And he's his baby, you know, and he's not the Dalai Lama, but he's enacting what I think is probably a reasonable representation of that. And he stops for a minute. It's worth renting the movie just to see this scene, you know. <laughs> he stops, and he thinks for a minute, puts down his head. Then he says, I am the cause of most of my own suffering by the habits of my own mind. So first of all, it's true. And second of all, it's, such a re it's so beautiful coming out of the mouth of a young person, you know, because really we are the source of our own suffering by the habits of our own mind. I think I would even venture to say not most of our own suffering, but really all of our own suffering by the habits of our own mind. There's some suffering that you say, well, is it a habit for me to suffer if I'm grievously um, bereaved of someone that I love? I don't know if that's a habit. I think maybe that may be a shock response of the body. I think after a while, there's a course of grieving, uh, different for everyone not a prescribable course. Can't say it should take a year, it should take seven years. But everyone I know who has, everyone, includes me as well, who has grieved the loss of somebody dear to them, knows that the pain to the system of the loss of that person, they're not there, changes over time. Most terrible right then. And it changes over time. And somehow, the mind all the while knows the real truth that this is what happens in life. No amount of knowing finishes the pain 
sooner than it does. And there's a way, I think, sometimes that we know that each of us has perhaps held on to pain longer than we needed to. Someone told me a story the other day on retreat. I think this is a, a reasonable story. I'm now disguising this story so much that if you imagine that you know someone on this retreat and it's their story, it's not. Uh, when you're a psychotherapist, you learn how to do that. <laughs> I so completely disguise the story, sometimes I don't remember who it is. <laughs> Somebody told me a story about, um, let's do it this way, about um, a love relationship that um, he had been in for a period of time years actually, on and off, on and off, but in which he had a lot invested. It never really successfully came together, but on and off and on and off. And most recently, almost on, once again, and now really quite off. And the person that he was in the relationship with is now in a relationship with somebody else that's finished. And he said, I uh, first of all felt really badly since I saw you last year. I got involved once again and um, I knew it wouldn't work. Hadn't worked so many times, but once again I thought it would. I, got, I knew better, but I got involved. You can see one of the seeds of suffering later is going to be, I knew better. Why did I do it? <laughs> um, doesn't matter what we know better. You know, it's one of the one of the things that happens is we know better, but we do this anyway. You know, that's uh, in fact that's I think why we practice so that we'll begin to do as well as we know. You know that. Mostly the knowing is ahead of the doing, you know, that, um, by a long shot. So uh, it's a, uh, the Buddha, in his instructions to Rahula, his son, um, in, a, in, a, in a sutta called Instructions to Rahula, says to, said to him, uh, before, before doing an action, you should contemplate thus. Is what I'm about to do for the benefit of others, for the benefit of myself, is it wise? If it is, then do it. In the <coughs> middle of doing something, you should think to yourself, is this for the benefit of others, for the benefit of myself, for the benefit of all beings? If it is, continue. Otherwise, stop. After having done something, <laughs> say to yourself, is what I just did. It's wonderful advice, you know, that kind of wise reflection. James said to me yesterday, he said, don't you think sometimes that much of what we teach is common sense? I said, yeah, I think it is, but it's so uncommon to have it. I don't know that why. <laughs> well, because the, 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 the truth is that the mind be becomes filled with the smoke of lust or the smoke of anything else that confuses it, and it's very hard to see clearly. So we forge ahead and once again make a mistake. So going back to this person on retreat, <coughs> said that you can see the seeds getting set up. Once again, I got involved. Then it permanently broke up, and of course I was tremendously grieved about this and in tremendous pain. But he said, one of the things that happened is that my, the, the pressure of my work was such that uh, I didn't have time to think about it. I didn't have time to grieve about it. I was just working so hard. And I knew that this month-long retreat was coming up. And I knew that I would have to grieve about this. But I figured I'll just put it off until I come, and I'll do the grieving when I get there. <laughs> <laughs> so, the <laughs> so it, but here he's been here three or four days at the time of this conversation. And he said, you know, I feel good because I came here 
And I decided that I'm not starting with that business yet because he gave me instructions about let's just bring the attention to the breath. And we're really working very hard on this particular retreat since it's quite long. It's, uh, has, there's some people up there for two months that we really thought we'd spend the whole first week at least just on breath meditation. Just whatever is coming up, just bring the attention to the breath, bring the attention to the breath. All of mindfulness practice you know, or you might know, uh, is bringing the attention to everything, thoughts and feelings and emotions and breath, body sensations. But uh, we thought we'd really start with a week of anapanasati, practice of bringing the attention to the breath, to have a really firm foundation in both tranquility and composing the mind and in uh, clarity and focus of attention. So he said, I really am doing that. And he said, I really feel fine. I mean, my mind is really getting really centered and focused. And uh, he said, I think I'll continue it for a while. I think I'll uh, do it for at least a week. He said, because I feel like there's all this unfinished business to do, but I waited so long to do it. Maybe I'll put it off for three or four more days, and I'll do it. Then he said, I, so I said, great. I think it's a good idea to do that. And he said, I bet when I let this stuff come up in my mind, my mind will be much less compo much more composed and tranquil so that the uh, emotions that I have to go through about this won't be so bad. <laughs> then he thought about it a little bit more, and he thought, maybe they won't even be there at all, <laughs> which is a huge insight because Look what happens. Uh, I think he's right. I'm hopeful that he's right. We'll see. Because really what happens, it's a radical difference from thinking I have to go through all this stuff or whether the stuff is through and we somehow retie ourselves in the knot by telling ourselves a story. Here's the event. The event is he had a relationship and it's over. That's really the truth. You let it back in. What's the truth of the experience and the truth of the memory? The experience isn't happening now. The experience happened four months ago, six months ago. So here's the memory. I was in love. It didn't work out. And that's the memory. Suppose the memory comes up, and that's just it. And the mind, in a place of tranquility or spaciousness or openness, enjoying its own peace, is disinclined to bring up a story to meet it, a story like, how could I have done such an idiotic thing to get involved again? That's, you know, that's, a, that's, a, that's an opinion and a thought. Suppose it's disinclined to bring up the story of, that was a terrible thing that that person did to me, you know, breaking up with me and leaving for this other person. I'll, the, I'll probably never be able to get into a relationship again. I, I botch up relationships all the time. This is all commentary. This is not what happened. This is commentary. These are habits of the mind. You know, sometimes when you read a uh, scripture text, an illuminated manuscript, any kind of scripture text, you see that the scripture is in the middle. And then around the page, there is commentary on it. And I think for a lot of our lives, we live in the commentary. <laughs> we don't live in what's in the middle of the page. Could skip the commentary. You could just read what's in the middle of the page. You could make up your own commentary. You could leave off the commentary. This is what happened. And what about if the mind, in a place of clarity, elected or didn't have, was disinclined, I think, had deconditioned itself from the habit of responding to every thought with its commentary on the thought that then ties the mind in a knot of um, fatigue, or remorse, or guilt, or bad opinion about yourself or what you did? Is it worth telling the story I told you, I told this morning about the, yeah, yeah okay. <laughs> so the people who are here really have to hear this twice. But it's about, I love to tell you the story because it's a grandmother story, but also about when events are just events. My grandson Harrison, who you probably met, 
because he comes from time to time with my daughter Elizabeth, is three. And last week, he and his mother and his one-year-old sister went on a shopping expedition. They went to the lamp store, where she was very happy to report to me that she was delighted to see they had one of those tables with crayons and paper. And she set him up with the crayons and the paper and looked at a few lamps. And he crayoned for about a very short period of time. And then he said, I'm bored. And she said, well, you know, sometimes we get bored, just keep on, you know, I have lamps to look at. And a minute or so later, he said, I'm very bored. <laughs> so uh, it didn't work out in the lamp store, and they went to another, uh, they, went to, they went to Northgate where they had some other errands to do, where also it didn't work out that it was pleasing to him. So they abbreviated their shopping trip and went back home. And they arrived back home in Nevada, uh, before lunch, much earlier than they were expected. And my son-in-law, who works at home, was surprised to see them come home so early. And he said, oh, you're home early. And uh, Harrison said, yep, we are. I was having a bad attitude. <laughs> and, uh, uh, it just wasn't a, you know, it wasn't a promise, just the truth. I was having a bad attitude. <laughs> <laughs> but no, you know, it's just a fact, and it finished. And I was so pleased by the story because, I, you know, we all have bad attitudes from time to time, but we don't have to make a whole story about it, uh, about you know what a worthless person I am, or that nobody loves me, and who I, you know, yeah, I was having a bad attitude. How to not make the nooses in the mind? that then catch us through the life in opinions that we have about ourselves that we then get stuck in, that color our experience so we can't have it plain. One of the knots, I think, that ties, they're all, they're all habits of mind, you know? There's a habit, that I think, of a mind called, I should be better. Uh, maybe that's the most pervasive one. Uh, I see it a lot on retreat where people uh, people often have a notion. They say, I'm really you know, having a bad time. And they'll tell you what's happening with them, and it's not a bad time. It's just what's happening with them. But there's somehow a notion that it should be happening in another way, that everybody else's experience is unfolding in a much more smooth, gratifying, enlightening way, and what's happening for them shouldn't be happening. And it's really not, first of all, it's not helpful because it is happening, and so it creates more storm in the mind. And also, fundamentally, it doesn't see what's the main <coughs> truth, which is there isn't anything else that could be happening, ever. Whatever is happening. It's been a while, so every once in a while, I give myself a few months between re-quoting Gwen, who I haven't seen in years, because uh, I think she's moved. But she used to come regularly on Wednesday morning. And remember, Gwen had that really great line. It, it was uh, Gwen's corollary to Rose's reflection. Uh, Rose, uh, one, Rose is in, is in India. Uh, Rose, one morning coming in, I met her coming in as we were coming to class, and I said, uh, how are you, Rose? And she said, I'm fine. And then she said, well, you know, I have this and that problem and the other problem and difficulty and this and difficulty about that. She said, but you know, actually, I'm fine. And uh, when we were here in class later on, I was talking about it. After we'd sat, I shared what had happened with Rose. And I said, maybe we should make that as our uh, secret handshake here. Uh, you know, like, like clubs have secret mottos. You meet each other in the supermarket, and we say to each other, how are you? And the other person will say, I'm, because we recognize each other from here, the other person will say, I'm fine. And we will understand that that does not mean that every single thing in their life is going great, but that, because it never is for everybody, every single thing in their life going great. We will understand that they uh, know that everything in their life isn't going great, and they're fine, because fundamentally, that's the way life is, and they got it, and they're all right, and they're managing. 
So I said, well, we should maybe do that. We should have Rose's remark as uh, the uh, uh, the <coughs> motto for this group. And then Gwen said, as her corollary, uh, she said, well, I don't say I'm fine when people say to me, how are you? She said, I always say I couldn't be better. And I like that so much because I think that's true, that when, when people say I couldn't be better, we think, oh, that means that they're in the pink. Mm -hmm. But actually, we never could be better. If we could, we would. You know? <laughs> if we're in a... You know, you know, if we're in a terrible place, we couldn't be better. Nobody purposely suffers. Nobody stays in a bad state. Somebody in this morning's in the early morning group said, yesterday, I got into a mess. You know, some, so I was broadsided by an event. My mind tied itself in a knot. I was suffering from it. I saw that I was suffering from having tied it, from my mind having tied itself in a knot. When you see this, and you think to yourself, if I could just let go of this, I wouldn't be suffering. But I can't. And then the suffering is worse, because then you think to yourself, what kind of a spiritual person am I? <laughs> and this whole, this whole practice is worthless, and I've been doing this for 10 or 15 years, and I'm not any better. So we're really spiritual. <laughs> so we agreed that none of those spiritual platitudes uh, do any good. Um, they're all true. This too shall pass. Uh, it will, but that does not help when, or it helps minimally, maybe we'll say minimally, minimal help, 5% minimal help, because it doesn't feel like it will. And whether or not it will pass, when you are tied in a knot of grief or pain of any kind, it's terrible. The mind contracts around it. You know, it helps you out if you're in the dentist and it's an extremely uncomfortable procedure. You tell yourself, oh, you how much time are I going to be here? <laughs> and then you tell yourself, okay, an hour, I can do this. But it doesn't make it any more pleasant. It's still extremely painful. I think maybe it's even more painful when you see that the knot that you have tied is not the dentist knot. It's your own knot, and you can't get out of it. If I could only disabuse myself of this craving that I have for things to be otherwise. So always those knots are, <coughs> we wanted so much something else. I was thinking about, when I was thinking about what, um, we're not even in charge of what we want, you know? Um, Somebody, uh, somebody told me a sweet story the other day. I'll tell it to you. I'll disguise it also so that a friend of mine told me that she was going to go do a memorial service for somebody who died. And she said, uh, the problem is I, I, I didn't know the, uh, the woman who died. So, uh, and I didn't have a lot of chance to talk to the family. But um, everybody I talked to, um, they said, you know, she was such a perfectionist. Uh, she just, she, it, it, uh, uh, it was really hard to shop with her because she, she was so careful about, it. no, no, we have to look more, we have to look more, we have to look more. It was very hard to choose greeting cards with her because she had to look until she got exactly. And by and by, the stories were more of exasperated <laughs> than anything else. I, I remember my father, who I finally put it off to the fact that he was born in the middle of Libra, uh, had much the same kind of a quality of maybe this, but maybe that, but maybe this, but maybe that, maybe this, maybe that. But no, no, it's not exactly right. You know, the back and forth, back and forth. So my friend was thinking, how would she talk? I mean, obviously, people loved her, but there was a sense about the woman that she was going to memorialize that there was a, she posed difficulties for her friends and her family. So I said, well, why don't you uh, say it like this? Why don't you say that she had a very clear idea about where it is that she wa what she wanted, instead of that she was hard to please, and say she had a really clear idea of what she wanted because it says in the texts 
that when you die and you pass over, that you could be seduced by all kinds of things, that you want to make that transit into your next experience without getting seduced into any kind of a not productive state or any kind of a not good state. So all of the things that lure you or that might lure you uh, into different kinds of experiences when in fact where you want to go is right over there into the clear light of whatever it is, but not stuck in another round of suffering. So maybe it would be good for her when she gets on the other side. You can say from her clear understanding of what exactly it was that she didn't want, she'll probably go right ahead into what kind of clear light space there is at the end of that tunnel. So you can pr portray it as a good thing. So it was a good memorial service, I think. <laughs> I don't know whether she actually said that, but it was a good um, memorial service. But I thought that, that I was thinking about the knots that happen are about things that we think we want. that we don't have a clear view of, or that we just, we don't choose, but that hold us hostage in some way. <coughs> and how much pain they are, you know, that we want things to be different. I remember, um, I remember, this has to be 30 years ago, I w did the S training, and there were things about it that I admired. It was difficult in many ways and some things that I didn't admire. But I remember one line from it that Werner Erhardt, who was the founder of S, said, he said, I thought, the, he said, a sign of a liberated mind is the ability to say about anything that happens, comes your way in life, uh, if it isn't what you want, to be able to say, this isn't what I wanted, but it's what I got. Uh, that's so amazing to be able to say, this isn't what I wanted. But it's what I got. But I wanted something else, you know. Um, I was thinking about this on my way down here, and I was thinking about uh, uh, the uh, the opening line of the twenty third psalm: uh, "I shall not want." Um, and I was thinking about uh, the Lord is my shepherd; I shall not want. And I thought about how the way the ways in which I've always thought about um, uh, since the psalm goes on to say, um, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies, you've anointed my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Uh, so I always had the sense of, I won't want for things because you'll give me all these things and the table will be set before me, I'll be anointed, my cup will run over. Well, who would want in those circumstances? You know, that, uh, th those are circumstances of plenty. And I thought maybe the real clue is if you would stop the psalm after the first line. <laughs> Just, I shall not want, you know, that, uh, period. That it's wanting that, I mean, th there are things that we desire. I mean, there are urges that come up. We feel like eating, and things that we feel like doing. Uh, certainly not. But wanting for things to be a certain way that they aren't or that they can't be. I think about the things that we want to have that don't have to cause turmoil in the mind. I mean, if we, uh, everybody here wants world peace. We want um, the end to world hunger think about it, 50% of the world goes to bed hungry every night. I didn't think so much when we read that statistic around the, I think we read it around the turn of the year in 2000, 80% of the world lives in substandard housing. And I thought about that a lot in that earthquake in India last week, you know. Um, so we would all like, we would all want, if someone said, maybe it's semantics, we would all wish that that was different. But somehow we can wish it and work really hard to have that happen, I hope really hard, 
to correct those things without turmoil, anguish in the mind about it. Or maybe anguish or pain that gets addressed by doing something about it. Are you, you are aware of all the sites on the email, the hunger site and the breast cancer site. Do you know about that? I tried to be faithful to my rule. How many people here have email? Here's a practice that I try to do faithfully. Turn on my email. I am very eager to see what's there. All my people have responded to me. I do a lot of my stuff on the email. So I'm eager to see what's there. I try to be faithful to checking the hunger site first. It takes less than a minute to, because it's now in my favorite places. You just do my favorite places. The hunger site comes up. You click. And then you get a thing that says, thank you very much. You've donated half a cup of rice. Half a cup of rice has now been donated by Amazon.com or whoever else is sponsoring. And then if you feel like staying there at that site, you can see who else sponsored it. Because it is, in fact, sponsored by people who would like you. Eddie Bauer sponsors the hunger site. So if I need new jeans, maybe I'll go to Eddie Bauer. So there's, uh, but it'd be wonderful to think that we could take the whole corporate impulse to uh, uh, to produce things and sell them, and turn them around in a way that actually, at the same time, is serving some purpose. And so, but I'd like to think that we could, each of us in our own way, be cognizant of the fact of 50% of the world and 80% of the world and doing whatever small or big things we can do. That's a small thing to do. And I imagine we are all each in our own lives addressing those issues in whatever ways come up for us to address them. So I think it's not even without uh, pain in the mind, but with maybe without anger in the mind. Maybe that's a better thing. Pain in the mind that leads to some constructive action, but not anger. I'm so convinced that anger clouds the mind and I won't see clearly what I can do. That just really anger and lust are the things that cloud the mind and fear. They cloud the mind, so I won't see what to do. <coughs> I still have to think about what are the knots. Well, maybe before we talk about what are the knots, if we get a little bit of time, I want to talk a little bit about mindfulness and the knots. And let's talk about the power of mindfulness, because you have to see the knots, first of all. So I just want to remind you of four particular powers of paying attention. And the first three really lead to the fourth. The first is if you pay attention, it has the effect of um, tidying up the mind. In, in the commentary, I, I do read commentary. In the commentary I read the other day about this, it said uh, it's written by uh, someone whose English is uh, uh, British English, and they use the word tidying more than we do. We say cleaning up, you know, and British English is tidying. But it's such a sweet word. So you pay attention moment to moment, it tidies up the mind. And I have this image, a little broom, you know. <laughs> tidying up the mind, <coughs> and you name what's happening. You get a clear, name what's happening, you sort out the things so that you can see through the mind. Tidying the mind, that paying attention to what's in the mind, just like it is, is non-coercive. It doesn't force it to be another way. You don't have to pretend that it's other than what it is. Harrison couldn't come home and say, I was having a bad attitude. You know, and now it's past. Or we could say about ourselves, I'm having a bad attitude. And we, being more than three years old, can either say, I think I'll try to get over this bad attitude now because it's not serving me and I'm embarrassed about having it, or I'll just have to keep myself to myself until this attitude passes so that I can not be causing disruption for other people. It's not a bad idea. Somebody said this morning, they go for a run, and they work up a sweat, the attitude changes. There are all kinds of things that you can do about your attitude, but the first thing you have to do is to know you have it, and to not f 
fight with it about being there. It is there. I'm having a bad attitude. I'm having a, I'm having a fit of irritability. I'm having a, a fit of despondency. I'm having a fit of fear. It's just, I'm having it. But it's, it's, a, it's a visiting transient event. It isn't me. It isn't actually even I who am having it when you come right down to it. It's just a visiting transient event. No one owns it. Probably it's a, it's a misconception when it's visiting here. We get to think, I have it, and it's mine, and it will never go away, and I'm a bad person for having it. So it's mindfulness is non, uh, non-coercive. It's not passive. Also, you get a clear idea of what you can do and the directness of vision. You really see what's really true, what's happening here. The knots in the mind are all the knots of our particular personal habits. One of the knots I get caught in is the knot of uh, trying to please. It's a peculiar, uh, it's it's Probably every, a lot of people, who here has the knot of trying to please? <laughs> I thought probably most people. Some people say, you know, I'm just doing the best I can. Please is good. Doesn't please? You know, it's so amazing to me. It's like meeting a rare bird with odd plumage, you know? Because <laughs> 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 you only know your own, your own thing. But one of the things that catches me um, is needing to please and uh, or needing to respond to every request, will you come here, will you do this, will you do that? And there's a part of me that really likes to show up, you know, that really wants to serve. And there's a part of me that realizes that it's unwise to respond to all of them, that I wouldn't do as good a job if I responded to all of them. There's partly hubris and, and inflation that leads me to do it when I make that mistake, fall into that trap, tie that knot again, and then feel badly about it. It's the hubris of believing. And <coughs> people say, you, you're the only person who can do this. You're, the, you're, you're just the right person for this. Mm-hmm. It's, completely, it's completely nonsense. You know? it's, it's not true. Um, and it's inflated to think that. And, uh, but it's very seductive. And, uh, and then you g- I get caught in that knot. And then I get caught in the knot of feeling bad about myself that I got caught in that knot. Think about one of the big lessons I learned about that knot. I just thought about it yesterday, as a matter of fact, when I was thinking about what I would tell you. About... Um, the ways in which we become free of our knots is what I was thinking about. I thought about different ways. One is really an intellectual way that suddenly we get it, like think about something and we get it. This is unwise. It's like a mental decision. Or we get it... um, Emotionally, we're in so much pain about it. So it's an emotional experience. Or we get out of the knot sometimes just because we stop fighting with the knot. Um, It's really an intuitive experience. The knot about um, responding to uh, every invitation I realized yesterday I had a, a very great service some years ago. This is sort of a sweet thing. I just thought of it yesterday, so I'll tell it to you today. It was somewhat personal. Uh, uh, everything is. Uh, five years ago, seven years ago, 1993, um, there was a, a, a um, conference in Tucson uh, at which the Dalai Lama spoke. And 1,200 people came. It was wonderful. And those of you who are here all the time know that I've told all kinds of stories about what the Dalai Lama taught and how he taught and how much I was moved by that conference. 
And I got to go to that conference because Jack turned it down. And uh, he said to me one day, uh, we were somewhere or another, and he said, I have this invitation to go and be one of the presenters. The Dalai Lama is going to teach during the day. And each evening, they're going to have a person from the Theravada lineage, the Zen lineage, the Tibetan lineage. So for each of the evenings, they'll have a person in each of those lineages <coughs> teaching. Uh, the the, the week-long teaching was on uh, um, patience. So, and each person of those different nights would do a teaching on patience out of their lineage. He said, I was invited to do it, but not wise for me to go away from my family at this point. I, I'll stay home. Do you want to go do it? I mean, imagine. He said, yes, I do. <laughs> and I didn't think about it since I thought at the, at the time, I thought this is great. And I went, and I went with my friend Sharon Salzberg, and we shared it. We had a wonderful time. And we read, uh, I read the, the Jataka tale on patience, and Sharon did, the, I think, a loving kindness practice, but we did it together, and it was wonderful. And I met wonderful people, and it was wonderful to be there, and I was very happy that I thought, I am very happy to, you know, second string is fine with me, you know, it's okay. Uh, but the, which is, so I th at the time, I thought it was a, a really, uh, a remarkable act of generosity, and I was happy for it. And then yesterday I thought to myself, what I have missed is that it was also a wisdom teaching. Uh, you know, that uh, I, I could have learned before now that you can give up things, even that they're really seductive, you know. Uh, you want to do this? <laughs> and that's one of, you know, that's one of the things that I'm likely to put my foot in or my arm. I think that there, I, I have this idea that there are all these knots around, like nooses. And we go along, and you can put your hand in it, <laughs> uh, or you can say, no thanks, you know? And we each of us have our own set. I remember one of the first stories I ever heard when I began to practice was the monkey trap in Asia story. Do you know that story? Who doesn't know the monkey trap in Asia story? Enough people. I heard, so I take this to be true, that in Burma, uh, how they catch monkeys is they uh, hollow out a coconut and uh, they put something very good tasting for monkeys in the, There's a little hole. They make a little hole in it, drain out what's in it, and then put uh, some very good smelling tidbit of what monkeys like to eat in there. And then the monkeys know about it, and they come, they're coming through the trees, they smell it. And then they put their hand into that little hole and grasp what it is that's in there. Now, once their fist is grasped, they can't get out of that hole. But they don't let go. Yeah. Uh, and they get caught. Now, that particular image of let go of what you want. Um, it's hard. I see it's coming on 11, so I'm going to skip over whatever else I was going to say and I'm going to say about my own experience with untying myself from knots that I have tied myself in once again from not seeing where I was going or from either not seeing that I am stepping into a trap that I should know better than, or when I am broadsided by an event that I simply cannot assimilate. It's just not true that I am able to say, somebody said to me recently, I was somewhere teaching, but I mean, you all know me. I was someplace with, you know, you come as a visiting teacher and uh, give a talk in some community, and somebody said, um, <coughs> How is it to, ha in the question and answer, how is it to have peace of mind all the time? <laughs> I said, I wish I knew, you know, that, that uh, yeah, <laughs> I don't know, boring out and may it come to pass in this lifetime. <laughs> but, um, and I have more than I used to, I really do. But 
There are things, events that happen that broadside me, that really get me, They're, you know, that, uh, that are not easy for me to let go. Somebody, oh, I, I remember I said to somebody in that context of how is it to have peace of mind, I said, you know, I could have the most extraordinary peace of mind. My loss of peace of mind is two words away. Those words are, do you know what they are? Well, it is preceded by the telephone ringing and someone saying, hello, mom, <laughs> in a bad tone of voice. <laughs> well, you know, that they have, how many people have that two word? <laughs> that peace of mind is gone. I mean, that's all right. I'm, I'm not fighting with that. That's the way it is. Um, but what I would like to be able to do, what I'm working on being able to do, is to recognize that the peace of mind is gone, do what I can do, and then not get as tied up in a knot about it as I used to. I'm working on that. It's getting better. So all the things that one might say to somebody that are the spiritual platitudes, what will be, will be, it's infuriating to have someone tell you what will be, will be. I mean, not if I have anything to say about it. You know, I'll, do it, I'll make it come out another way. Um, but in fact, it's a, it's a truth. What will be, will be, including the efforts that I will make to have it come another way. It doesn't mean I don't do anything. It means I do everything that I can do. And what will be, will be, and this too shall pass and it's bigger than all of us, and it's out of our hands, and all of the spiritual platitudes that we might possibly say. And if you could let go, you'd be free. Who doesn't know that? We all know that. <laughs> but it doesn't happen, and the pain is there. The way that the knot unties is for me to be able to say to myself, I'm in terrible pain. I'm in pain. And feel it and say, may I be peaceful, may I be happy, may I be free of suffering, or may I be free of danger, may I have mental happiness, may I have physical happiness, may I have ease of well-being. Actually, that, those, those times of doing metta, in response to, seriously, I'm in pain, are what the, the, those instances where it seems most profoundly uh, a potent practice, because I really mean it. You know, that, because what will happen in that moment is that my attention will so focus on that intention. May I have mental happiness? May, it doesn't solve the problem. It focuses the mind from its hysterical proliferation of all of the terrible things that might happen if the situation doesn't get fixed. Some situations can't get fixed. Some can, and I try. Some are broken. I can't fix them. And just to be able to say, this is true. I am in pain, but I don't have to be hysterical about it. I'm in pain, and I'm here. The hysterical proliferation of thought doesn't have to happen. That's making it work. That's tying the knot work. I don't have to tie the knot work. Another way of saying untying the knot, because you can't untie the knot, it unties by itself, is by really surrendering. Say, I can't untie this knot. I'm in terrible pain. And I wish it were other. May I be peaceful. May I be happy. May I know what to do. May I have the strength to do it. Ultimately, I think it's letting it go. even going to say letting it go with a certain amount of faith or trust. I think the faith that I have, absolutely have, is that things will change. I also have the absolute faith, I, I do have the absolute faith that the mind can rest in the middle of everything. I don't have, the, I don't have a faith that if I let go, things will turn out in a good way or in the way that I wanted. 
Because sometimes they don't. I don't think it's magic letting go. I don't think. Um, I don't think it's magic. I, I think it's. I think it's pretty magical to discover that you can have peace of mind in the middle of a life, no matter what. <laughs> that is magic. It would be a different kind of magic if letting go got the end that you wanted. But I don't think it does that. Sometimes the end that you wanted happens, and sometimes it doesn't. But I don't think this practice is about getting things to turn out the way we want. Because, first of all, because they can't. And not all of them. I mean, because it's really true. We will lose everything and every. But I think it's about learning that uh, life will unfold the way that it will. And uh, what we could do, really, is understand deeply that that's what's happening. It's not even happening to us. It's just happening. And then all the layers of profound understanding that is just happening, not to us, not to anyone. That particular, somewhat breathtaking realization is just happening. Which sounds a little bit careless if you just say it to someone who never heard that kind of talk. Sounds cavalier, like it's all okay, or like we shouldn't address the social ills of the world. doesn't mean that at all. It means, for me, it means quite the opposite. It means it's all happening because of everyone, because of everything, since the beginning of everything. And it couldn't be different, like Gwen's corollary. couldn't be better. It can be different tomorrow. It can be different in the next minute. And it will be different depending on what every single one of us does and what the whole world does. It doesn't just hang on me. It hangs on every single person. But it hangs on me as well as every single person, so you can't put the ball down. So I'm not responsible uniquely for what's happening with me. The whole world is responsible for my experience now and for each of yours. But I feel like I am responsible for everything that will happen after this moment by what I do. And so are you. And so is every one of us. So I feel I don't have to uh, feel personally guilty, but I have to feel personally responsible. Um, so it's not, it's not uh, fatiguing. It's ennobling. It's inspiring. There's no end to what we could talk about, about untying the knot. <laughs> Except it's 11 o'clock, so we have to go home. Um, take a breath in and out. And let's remember to say, may the merit of our study together and our practice together and whatever insights we discover together and our communal intention to clarify our own minds and our own hearts be given as a gift, an offering to the well-being of all beings everywhere. May all beings everywhere live safely in dwellings that protect them, in communities that protect them, in cultures that protect them, in social structures that look after them. May they have enough to eat, medical care for their bodies, May they discover that fundamentally we have hearts that can love each other. May all the knots everywhere become untied. May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. Thank you. And I'll see you next week.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.